Before we get started, I should warn you that there are a couple of words in this episode that would um, corrupt the youth that basically everyone in this episode, guests included, has been tasked with educating. Our shame is immense. And this is Ben Federson. And this is A Million Little Gods. So on the off chance that some of you still have the show subscribed, you'll recognize my voice, but you won't recognize Ben's. That's because this used to be a one-man show, but it's no longer a one-man show. We're producing it now from the University of Hamburg's uh, Institute for English and American Studies. And Ben is the co-host now. The show doesn't launch until November 5th, so mark your calendars. But we wanted to give you a little bit of an early look at a, a very current and interesting debate around creoles um, which naturally leads us to the question Aaron what is a creole yeah well that's the problem right I've been working on this with one of our producers a student doing her MA in linguistics Leonie Bauer yeah hello and we can't seem to encapsulate the idea without taking sides in the debate we're about to hear um, a creole is, um, um <laughs> I'm going to make you start again. Right. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so what is a creole? What is a creole? A creole is, um, a mixed language. If I have to explain it, I don't know that I'm particularly, um, an authority on this, but, um. That, um, emerged, uh, because two languages, uh, um, oh God, wait. <laughs> Can I try again? Absolutely. Of course, we're going to have to come up with some criteria for what we mean by a thing. So um, just generally trying to find our footing, what kind of thing could it possibly be? It's it's um, it's not really a different kind of language as much as it is a different kind of way that language changes, um, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Um, okay. A Creole is a mixed language um, that uh, developed out of two languages in uh, the colonial times and um, it oh shit I can't say that what <laughs> okay it's probably a good idea to make sure our listeners know what we're not talking about If I did a man or woman on the street survey anywhere in the U.S. and asked, what is a Creole, I would, I can predict with full confidence, get one of two answers. 
First, the majority would overlook the fact that I used the determiner uh before Creole, and they would say Creole is a kind of cuisine from Louisiana, and they would conjure up in their minds a kind of conceptual skein of crawfish broils bubbling over a gas burner and jambalaya and deep spicy filet gumbo and oysters Rockefeller and beignets capped with powdered sugar and cups of chicory coffee. And then second, a large minority would say a Creole is a member of a culture of people somehow related to the French who make the aforementioned food and play Zydeco music. And, of course, they speak a strange, broken language. That's lovely, right? Zydeco was nearly ruined for me by those Clorox commercials from the 80s. Does anyone else remember those? Them lemons they roll, them lemons they bounce, I've even seen a lemon drop. Sorry. Anyhow, that's certainly what I'm conditioned to think about when I hear the word Creole. Crawfish etouffee, dudes with rubbing boards on their chests, and hurricanes. But that's a really U.S.-centric conception, and it's pretty historically impoverished. And it's definitely not the sense we're trying to wrap our heads around. So let's drop the time stone in our infinity gauntlet and turn back the clock. The problem is you think you're going to get a lot from etymology, but you're just not, for a lot of reasons. But in this case, like in a lot of them, if you travel back far enough, you come to an amorphous, primordial swirl of influences, with words in different languages in something like a quantum entanglement with each other. From as early as 1415 in the case of Portugal and reaching really just unprecedented frequency in the 17th and 18th centuries, just millions of people from Africa, the Americas, and Asia and Europe encountered each other constantly. I can say that the English word Creole is probably most directly influenced by the French word Creole, but honestly, people speaking French and Spanish and Portuguese were just swapping words like bodily fluids in a freshman dorm. All of the equivalent words, whether it was creole from French or the Spanish criollo or the Portuguese criulo, they all went through pretty much an identical pattern of acquiring new senses. By the way, in case you're asking where I'm getting all this from, it's from the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm not going to scrounge through the corpora for this. I've got a day job and kids. I guess I could have asked Leonie, but eh, she's got stuff to do too. Anyhow, the pattern goes something like this. They all start off meeting a descendant of white settlers who was born in the colonies. I should mention that criulo, the Portuguese word, is probably the edamon, that's the granddaddy of the other words, by like half a second. But the record seems to indicate that it did have a subtlety prior to the meaning it shared with the words in the other languages. 
Namely, in its earliest iterations, it didn't mean a person of white European descent born in the colonies, but a person of African descent born in the American colonies. And that's not unimportant. It means that the impelling force behind at least the Portuguese word wasn't just xenocentrism. It wasn't just about making clear who had more or less claim to being really Portuguese. It was something more like the essentialism of a botanist trying to classify a chimerical hybrid plant. How are you going to just graft together nightshade and tomatoes? That thing isn't what it's supposed to be. The impelling force behind Criulo was something like racism. Then sometime around the end of the 17th century, this word soup took on another flavor. In the words of the OED editors, all of the variations on Creole acquired the meaning simplified language based on the lexicon of a European language. And finally, between the 1880s and the 1890s, a more nuanced variation on that meaning took hold. All of the words Creole, Creole, Criolo, Criulo began to indicate, again, according to the OED, a simplified language that had begun as the mixing of two or more other languages, but becomes the primary language of a community. And that's basically the sense we're trying to get at now. Although, actually, the OED has a separate entry under that one to specify the word as it's used in linguistics. The linguistic definition is, more generally, any language that has developed from the mixing of two or more parent languages and has come to be the first language of a community. The key to that definition are the first four words. More generally, any language. It's not just the contact between a dominant group, a colonizing group, if you will, and a subordinate group like a colonized people or slaves. It's about any time two languages quote-unquote mix, and the resulting language then becomes the primary language. So a Creole is two languages come into contact, and the when they mix, the, the populations that start needing to communicate with each other eventually produce controversially something a, a language that is a new kind of language it's something that didn't exist before and is distinct whatever that means from the languages that that spawned it yeah i mean that's always going to happen anytime languages come into contact of course and even when languages don't come into contact often they change over time just by drift of pronunciation for example and maybe that's all that ever happens Languages encounter each other and they change a bit. Maybe that last definition the OED provides specifically for linguistics, maybe it's superfluous. Maybe all that we mean by Creole is the languages or dialects that emerged as a result of the social and historical circumstances of colonialism and the slave trade. And there's no real way to typologically classify them. Maybe Creoles aren't really things. And that's why this problem is part of our show. Starting in November, we're going to have an entire series dedicated at least ostensibly, to an even more galling problem. Our series is called Race. Is that a thing? But we'll just let the listeners in on a secret now. Our actual focus is much bigger than just race. We want to get at what it is that makes any individual thing a thing. And that's why we find this debate beguiling. We've got two sides, and you know, the elephant in the room is we've, we're, want, we're wading into something resembling an academic throwdown. Yeah, and, uh, it's an academic Jerry Springer. Yeah. Uh, so we got two. Bye. We've got two teams. Uh, we got two teams. We've got team thing and team not a thing. 
That's right. And on Team Not a Thing, we have a venerable linguist, Sally Coco Mufwene. Yes. Of the University of Chicago. Thank you for inviting me. Who is one of the most prominent voices in a vocal minority of linguists who, over the past 20 years or so, have contended indeed that it makes no sense to talk about Creoles as genuinely distinct linguistic typological kinds. What I find particularly flawed is the taxonomic model. And on Team Thing, you have a linguist who, as they say, needs no introduction. Okay. John McWhorter is a very popular public intellectual. He's a professor at Columbia and hosts his own podcast, Lexicon Valley. You can find his writing basically everywhere and all the time. There you go. I think he just recently became a contributing editor at The Atlantic as well. And let's just say that John feels like he's taking crazy pills. (laughs) He has tried in as many contexts and on as many venues as he can to lay out why he believes Professor Mufwene and his compatriots are severely mistaken in denying the reality of Creoles. And he gets a little prickly. Sometimes when you sound petulant, you might be correct, and I think in this case I am. I should say this is only a short version of this episode. A more complete version of the episode will be part of our series, which premieres in November. That one will include Professor Susanna Michaelis of the University of Leipzig, whom I will be visiting next month. She recently published a major article in Nature together with some other scholars using statistical analysis to show that grammar is robustly transmitted even in cases of Creole formation. The other voice you're about to hear is that of Richard Bonney. He's a doctoral student here in Hamburg, and one of his specializations is pigeons and creoles. And now, without further ado, let's get to the smackdown. Okay, so let's let's start by clarifying a couple of things. How have linguists traditionally defined mixed languages as opposed to pigeons and creoles, and how they traditionally distinguish between the latter two, that is, between pigeons and creoles? Okay. The category of mixed languages is a consequence of how people have been doing genetic linguistics since the 19th century. That is, people have assumed a taxonomic uniparental model, according to which a language naturally evolves on its own with little influence from other languages. And when a language is heavily influenced by another language, such as in the case of Creoles and Pigeons, then it becomes a mixed language. Or even more clearly, in the case of so-called intertwined languages, such as Michif in Canada and North America, when part of the grammar comes from one language and another part of the grammar comes from another language, then that is clearly a mixed language. The definition of Creole is extremely elusive in Creole studies. Creole studies almost prides itself on not being able to define what is supposed to be our object of study. But a pigeon is what happens when people come together, usually for rather temporary reasons, often trade, and a makeshift lingo arises with maybe a few hundred words and a very rudimentary grammatical structure. Often that 
collection of words and the grammatical structure are based mostly on one language, maybe the group that's numerically or sociologically dominant. Sometimes you just have a one-on-one -on -one combination between the two languages. But everybody agrees that a pidgin is not a full language. In some cases, uh, people said that the outcomes of the contacts of European languages with the non-European languages are pigeons. And there, the explanation is that the European language was used as the lingua franca, the trade language. Um, in the sporadic contacts with, that the Europeans had with the uh, speakers of other languages, and that would explain it. You're going to produce something that is not like the native variety, and in the case of Persians, people say they are so broken that, you know, the best term for them is Persian. Then Creoles, what a Creole is, it used to be until roughly about 1990 that everybody agreed that a Creole was what happened when for one reason or another, a pigeon became a language that people used to live their entire lives such that the pigeon expanded into a full language. That happened often on plantations, but truthfully, just as often in other settings. It's kind of a geopolitical and socio-historical accident that the plantation kinds of Creoles happened to have gotten so much attention. But that was certainly a setting where it tended to happen. Now, there is a folk sense that extends to some linguists who don't happen to be terribly concerned with mixed languages that Creole simply refers to mixture. But of course, or I used to be able to say of course, we know that isn't the answer because any language in the world is mixed. If Creole just meant mixed, than a language like Albanian, where most of the core vocabulary is no longer originally Albanian, and a great deal of its grammars from other languages would be a Creole. Romanian, which is a Romance language with a heavy Slavic influence would be considered a Creole, and that's not what anybody has ever considered Creole to mean. So mixture is not the defining feature. The languages that we've called Creoles tend, because of the nature of their socio-history, to be highly mixed languages. But the crucial feature was once thought to be that these are languages that have grown from what you might call linguistic adversity, or at least they grew from makeshift lingos into real languages. In the case of Creoles, we get our heuristic prototypes in the plantation settlement colonies, especially of the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean, where the African populations became the majority populations. And 
because of multilingualism among them, they uh, couldn't, you know, communicate with each other in African languages. And being in situations where they had no particular political or economic power, let alone freedom, because most of them were enslaved, they appropriated the uh, dominant European language as their vernacular. But because of segregation, they didn't get to speak the European languages like the native speakers. And because the languages had been so transformed, people said, we have to call them Creoles. And then somehow, before people really verified history, they said, because pigeons are simpler, Creoles are more elaborate, Creoles must have evolved from pigeons. Now, of course, these days it's considered kind of unfashionable to say that there's a relationship between most of the languages we call Creoles and what's called the pidgin. And that is the heart of the debate between people like Sali Coco Mufwene and me. Starting in the latter part of the 90s, John McWhorter embarked on the project of trying to document how Creole genesis took place. That is, he explored the hypothesis that Creoles are based on pigeons, but have only slowly gathered complex features, sort of like barnacles on the hull of a ship. But he took the conjecture a step further, right, Leone? That's right. He proposed that you can compare data about the world's languages and pick out a pattern that matches Creoles. You know... You know, as you explain that, it's occurring to me that we we haven't defined the word typology yet, even though it's in the title. <laughs> Jeez, people, why don't you stop us? What are you? What are you? A bunch of shrinking violets? What do you need? What do you need? Some smelling salts? All right. So, typology. Tell me what typology is, Leonie. <laughs> uh, in linguistics, it's divided into synchronic and diachronic and typology. Diachronic, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, diachronic typology is about different types of ways languages change over time, and synchronic typology is a snapshot of languages at the present moment. So, okay, so we want to focus on typology of the synchronic sort, and in order to figure out what types of language are possible, logically, you have to ask what features or structures are characteristic of types of language. So, okay, so you come up with your features, which, you know, if you've ever had a semantic dispute about whether a taco is a sandwich, this is not as fun as that. (laughs) Well, I never had that semantic dispute. Uh, What do you think? Uh, I think tacos are not sandwiches. Well, then you're wrong. Okay, let's continue. <laughs> uh, but I think I still think it's uh, interesting. About tacos or no? uh, Both, but also the languages. Okay. All right, we're continuing. <laughs> so you- you're totally right. So what's the most illustrative example of a feature that gets used in typology? I think uh, the one that's easiest to understand would be the standard order of the subject, verb, and object in a language. Okay. Uh, most of the world languages are either subject, verb, object, like English, or subject, object, verb. Japanese is like that. And then there's a tiny fraction that are odd and that have the structure verb, subject, object, Welsh, for example. Weird. 
But German is weird too, though, right? Well, but actually, German is classified like English as SVO. So subject, verb, object. Okay. Yeah. But there are weird sentences in German. But that's only in dependent clauses that you move around the verb mm. to the end, that's like uh, die Amerikaner denken, dass Schnitzelwürstchen sind. <laughs> uh, the Americans say that Schnitzel's sausages are. Yeah. So so that's one characteristic that's used to compare languages. And then you can make universal statements about languages like all languages have a subject and a verb or like McWater does, you can talk about prototypes. Mm. The thing with prototypes, though, that's hard to understand is you don't necessarily have to have one thing that perfectly fits the prototype. You can have good examples and bad examples because they're closer to the prototype. That is, they have more of the characteristics on the list. So if you think of a prototypical chair, then an armchair is a good example. But like an ottoman is a bad example. Okay. Um, I think you argue that Creoles are um, less complex than uh, other languages. Mm -hmm. So could you explain to us what you mean by linguistic complexity? In 1998, McWhorter published the paper Identifying the Creole Prototype, Vindicating a Typological Class. And them's fighting words. You can tell just by the title that he was already pretty incensed over the debate about the nature of Creoles. But in that article, McWhorter delineates the criteria for identifying a Creole. So the first one would be um, that Creoles lack paradigmatic inflection. The second, there is no lexical or grammatical tone. And the third, uh, they lack opaque derivation. Could you explain these three terms to us? Yeah. Um, well, it's important to realize that there's only a partial overlap between those three features, which I call the prototype hypothesis and the whole issue of complexity. Because for example, opaque derivation is not complex. It just happens to be something that I think makes it clear that a language has been around for a longer time than a Creole has. And I just interject, I'd like to clarify what opaque derivation is for the listeners. Um, you've used the word understand as an example. Basically everyone knows what the component parts are. That is, they know what under and stand mean, but, um, it's hard to understand, as it were, why those words put together mean understand. Yeah. And so you can even call it via shorthand, the understands. And that's something that you have to an extent in any language. But the ones that make no sense whatsoever, another one would be something like um, people are kissing under the staircase. We call that in English making out. Why? What are you making? What's out about it? It just makes no sense whatsoever. That sort of thing is something that happens when a language gets old, and it's very ordinary, but it's not complicated. I'm saying that one way that you know that a language was a pigeon a few hundred years ago is that you don't have cases of derivation that are opaque in that way. So that. Or, for example, inflection as you hinted, Aaron, comes in many flavors. And inflection itself is not complicated. If I say something like black, blacker, 
And then there's a language where you say more black instead of having a suffix. There's nothing complicated about the suffix. My point is simply that if you look at certain kinds of inflection and you look at opaque derivation and you look at lexical and grammatical tone, if a language combines those three things, then you know that it was born as a pigeon not too terribly long ago, and that therefore that could help us in having some sort of definition of Creole language, because that is a kind of language which, to my knowledge, does not exist if it doesn't have a history in widespread and extreme second language acquisition. The uh, features that led John McWhorter to posit the notion of Creole prototype. Mm. So, lack of tones, lack mm. of derivations, lack of inflections. Yeah. Those are features that you find in other languages too. But McWhorter says, the difference is that you get a combination of the three in the case of Creole. So now you get the expectation that there is now a typological class of languages that must meet these three conditions in order to be identified as Creoles. And then McWhorter himself realizes that this won't work. And the idea of prototypes is consistent with the notion of fuzzy category. In a fuzzy category, you have a core of members that meet all the criteria. And then you get the vast majority of members that don't meet all the criteria. So either they meet two or they meet only one of them. Well, that's shooting oneself in the foot. I don't know whether McWhorter's hypothesis holds water, but, you know, there's something that can be verified best by parties separate from him and me. I'm going to talk about the numbers now. Um, Richard Bonney, as promised at the top. In 1998, you actually stated that an expandable data set reveals uh, flaws in the socio-historical argument uh, behind the superstrate framework. So that is sort of analyzing Creoles as varieties of 
the lexifiers of, of Creoles. The lexifier, by the way, is the parent language that gives a mixed language the majority of its vocabulary and structures. Um, now, the question is, have these expanded data sets been measured st statistically? Well, you know, there's a, there's a new fashion lately, and I've realized that I need to jump onto it in order to be listened to at all, and that's just the way it goes, which is to say that if Creoles are really a kind of language, then the only way to really prove it is to do it with some sort of statistical or quantificational analysis. And I'm, I'm a little unenthusiastic, partly because my sense is that there is a deep-seated ideological bias against the idea that there's a such thing as a Creole language afoot, especially in Creole studies, such that no matter what data set you used and no matter how you analyzed it, there would always be just this this resistance, this implacable resistance to what your conclusions were. But for example, last summer, the article came out in Nature by Damian Blasi, Susanna Haspelmath, and Martin, um, Susanna uh, Michaelis, and Martin Haspelmath, which purports to show via statistical analysis that Creole's traits are all drawn from their source languages and that therefore there's no reason to derive them from pigeons or anything like it. And you know, that article is meant very politely. I would say that the problem is that their analysis doesn't account for what Creole languages don't have that their source languages do. That's what you would need to actually get at this kind of question. And so obviously what I need to do is set up my own study where I show that Creole languages lack the most of what their source languages put in compared to, say, the Albanians or other mixed languages like, for example, Mitif. But to tell you the truth, I have every expectation that if I did that, somehow it would be decided that my data was wrong. Even if I took it from, you know, the Atlas of Pigeon and Creole language structures that Susanna and other people have so helpfully put together, I just, I would not be allowed to make my point. And I know that sounds petulant, but sometimes when you sound petulant, you might be correct. And I think in this case, I am. Are there deep social connotations to the words Creole and Pidgin? I mean, when we're talking about Creole, is it a linguistic kind or rather a socio-historical kind? Well, for me, it's a socio-historical kind. And if it is a socio-historical kind, then we have to be true to history and identify as Creoles only the variety that were recognized during the late colonial period as Creole. And somehow, since the late 19th century, linguists have taken the liberty of the power of baptizing various languages associated with contact as Creole. And very often in settings where the native speakers themselves don't know the term Creole in the first place, like in the case of Gala on the coast of South Carolina and Georgia in the United States, uh, you talk to native speakers about Creole. They don't know what you are talking about. And even the term Gala or Gishi, with which the variety is identified, People are not so familiar with them, and they are often offended when you tell them they don't speak English. 
in that context, you may say, well, you know, the Africans gave up their heritage languages and appropriated English, and in the process, they modified it and so forth. But you can make the same statement about Amish English, because the Amish don't speak German anymore, and they have adopted English, and the English is different from mainstream English, non-standard English in the United States. Why hasn't anybody there called Amish English a Creole? Then you start wondering about, hey, what are the uh, implicit criteria for identifying a particular variety mm. as a Creole? Could it be that if the majority speakers or all speakers are of non-European descent? That's marks of racism in linguistics, doesn't it? Do you think this situation you're frustrated with is part and parcel of a general movement in the academy towards uh, avoiding ideas that are sociopolitically infelicitous? <laughs> yes, I do. And it's interesting. I had not really framed it that way until relatively recently. But yeah, this is a symptom of something larger, which is that the people who are viscerally resistant to the idea that there's a such thing as a Creole synchronically in, in the present tense are basing their ideas on charitably what I would say is a wariness because there are people who think Creoles are junky languages even now. And people were even more open about it, especially in the past. And so Creoles have really been dumped upon. And particularly if you're a speaker of an Indo-European language, it's very easy to think that a language that doesn't have a whole lot of endings, that a language that doesn't give you the challenge that German or Spanish do in class, is somehow less of a language. And so, for example, right now I am undergoing intense tutelage in Mandarin, and it's one of the most delightfully difficult linguistic tasks I've ever had. But people are always saying, and I have heard Americans whose Mandarin is excellent, as well as Mandarin speakers themselves, say that Chinese doesn't have much grammar. And all they mean is that it doesn't have ablo, ablas, abla. It's got plenty of grammar. So it's easy to think that Creoles are not real languages. And so if someone like me comes along, and first of all, I don't speak a Creole, and I've got a snotty voice, and you know I'm an American academic, and so like, who is he to pronounce upon these things? And then if you say that Creole languages are a kind of language, naturally, you're going to have to talk about what they have less of, because they do have less, and everybody knows it, but it means that you have to say Creoles are the least X, the least Y, and the least Z. Obviously, that is going to step on people's toes. And for many people, it's just going to be socio-politically revolting. The case still remains, just on the basis of empiricism, that yes, Creole languages do show signs of having been born recently from what was not language. That doesn't mean that they aren't full and nuanced languages that can express every shade of humanity. But there are things that languages drag along, like tin cans behind a car after somebody gets married, just as a result of how long they've existed. Most of the machinery of any older language is unnecessary. And I'm not sure how many of the people who hate my work so much on Creoles understand that. I think that, and this is something that you see, unfortunately, in Mufuene's work and in that interview, Creolists tend to talk about a very narrow range of languages. It seems that you can listen to Creolists and you would think that the only languages that exist are roughly Romance languages, 
It's surprising how little even German comes up, considering how much Creole studies takes place in Germany. But Germany, then apparently there's Dutch. Then there are a few analytic languages spoken on about three inches of the coast of West Africa. And then people make, you know, casual references to Kikongo. And really, that's about it. I'm not sure that this discussion is couched in a full awareness of how much mess there is in languages around the world. And I try to write about that when I write about complexity, but nobody wants to read it because it seems irrelevant to Creole studies because Creoles are not based on languages like Navajo. Nevertheless, I think you do need to have that larger perspective, as well as the perspectives that all of them have that I don't, in order to assess this question. So yes, I think that the resistance, it's not that you know, I have created some sort of magic work and everything I say is perfectly correct. And, you know, maybe, frankly, I, I doubt it, but maybe it'll turn out that I'm just completely wrong. But what you get from, I would say most people, you know, I'm not going to say most, I'd say about half of the card carrying Creolists is just, you know, feet dug into the ground. Absolutely not. Creoles could not possibly be a kind of language. And you know that there must be something else going on in that. Why would people who devote their career to studying a kind of language not be interested in figuring out what its parameters are or are not? You know, we're this weird field where it's considered perfectly okay and perhaps even permissible to not be able to tell an outsider what a Creole is. You're supposed to roll your eyes and say, oh, it's controversial and like it that way. I don't think that, that that's not normal. And the reason that people are, are, are okay with that is because there is a separate motivation that makes people not wish to engage what a Creole is, or I think, frankly, pretend that there's no such thing. So yeah, that is what we are, that is what we're stuck in. John McWhorter, man, he has, uh, he's, he's got some strong feelings. Yeah, I think seriously. I think justifiably so. I think he tr- he. I don't have to think. He says he he feels treated unfairly. He feels that the work that he's done and the points that he he's made haven't been, let's say, engaged with in good faith. Mm, yeah, I feel bad for Salikoko Mufani on the other side because we haven't been able to include everything that he said, nor McWhorter for that matter. I mean, we're clocking in here at forty-five minutes, so we promised this to be a, a short preview. It needs to be said, though, that these guys take this really seriously. And for that reason, you know, more so than with all the other scholars that we've spoken to in the last three years of producing our series, one, I don't want to restrict them from making the points that they hold to be important. And two, I'm loath to usurp the topic and make it fit within the parameters of our project. Having said that, though, I I do think that it's a good preview of things to come in our series starting on November 5th. I, I think it's a perfect example of a purported, quote, thing about which it's exceedingly difficult to nail down what its thingliness entails. I think we ended up this uh, this episode about as confused as when we went in. And, you know, that's there's some consolation in uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the, that's the subtitle of the show. <laughs> I think we just can't let this go by without giving the listeners a sneak preview of some of the fireworks that we didn't even include in this preview. Anybody who knows me, whether you like me or not, knows that I would never lay over backwards and let somebody write something like that and not have some responses. What the hell does anybody think I've been doing for the past 17 years? So just how old it is lets you know that I must have said something. And if you haven't read it, then you have no right 
to sail around the world telling people that I've been refuted. You may not want to read what I've written, but if you haven't, you need to keep quiet about this issue of refutation. At least read the Creole debate. This is not the way scholarship works. And so I'd be interested to see how this exchange goes further with both of us having actually engaged one another's writings. Mufwane, it's got to catch up. Both Sally Coco Mufwane and John McWhorter publish regularly. Sally Mufwane is the founding editor of the Cambridge Approaches to Language Contact series. John McWhorter published a book this summer on his side of the controversy called The Creole Debate. Many thanks to Thomas Witherspoon of the SW Elling Post for letting us use his shortwave recording of Talk Piss and Radio Opigen out of Australia. You heard the jigging of the Michif-speaking Métis people of Western Canada in the traditional song Asimo Moi. Also, there was the Nigerian artist David Jones David with a beautiful cover of Adele's Hello in Nigerian Pigeon. And the haunting sound of Albanian polyphonic chanting from the album Balkan Blues. Our theme song is by the band Recycled, and this episode featured music by Pottington Bear. A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Our student producers are Pat Nels, Julia Appa, Marvin Kristoff, Anna Pichich, and of course, Leone Bauer. Writing and other production are by Ben, and this show was edited by me. You're going to want to hear the rest of our series, Race, Is That a Thing? Starting on November 5th, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review, please. It'll help us... Stand out like a big giant inflatable unicorn raft in the increasingly crowded podcast pool. We're online at a million little gods, all one word.com. You can find links and material related to each episode at facebook.com slash a million little gods. And our Twitter handle is at AMLG podcast. We'll see you for the beginning of our series in just a few days.